This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, Counterspin, The Jimmy Dore Show, On the Media, The Young Turks, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Onion Radio News, and Comedian Lee Camp. And a note for all listeners that you're probably being filmed right now, but it's totally for your own well-being, so don't even worry about it and just feel good about how safe it's making you. This is interesting. Google on Sunday released a sampling of its own data as part of its transparency report. It's the fifth one that they've issued. It covers government-issued takedown uh, requests and also requests for user data. And according to uh, Google, democracies led the way in overall number of content takedown requests shared by Google with a request for over 6,000 items to be remo removed for coming from U.S. court orders and government and law enforcement agencies. Now, you know, in some uh, dictatorships, they just don't allow you to get to Google, and they don't allow you to get to YouTube. So you have to take that with a grain of salt. But 6,192 items to be removed came from uh, requests came from the United States. 1,700 from Germany, less than 900 by the UK, on and on and on. The takedown notices, according to, um, range from everything from request by a local law enforcement agency to remove YouTube uh, videos for alleged harassment. Google didn't reply with about 1,400 of those requests. They did comply with requests from the UK to uh, get rid of um, videos which supposedly promote terrorism. But Google lists the number of requests for their user data by government and law enforcement agencies. U.S. led the way with that with over 6,000. And they just wanted to get they just want to get access to the user accounts and data. It's not like Google has all sorts of data on us. Once they get your YouTube account, they get your email address and anything else that's linked to it. I don't know. There you go, folks. Enjoy our uh, YouTube videos, please. YouTube.com forward slash user forward slash Sam We commend the New York Times for the June 11th story shining a light on police agencies that use preemptive tactics to thwart activists from demonstrating against the government in Russia. According to the Times story, headlined Raids Target Putin's Critics Before Protest, quote, the Kremlin raised pressure on Russia's opposition movement on Monday, searching the homes of several of its leading figures. The coordinated early morning raid sent a new shudder through political circles, preparing for another large demonstration in central Moscow. Close quote. The Times quoted the U.S. State Department condemning the Russian outrage. Good reporting. 
But what about police repression closer to home? In May, in advance of the NATO summit in Chicago, police broke into several homes without warrants and rounded up sleeping activists. Most of those arrested were held for a day or two before being released without charge. During the Republican National Convention in New York City in 2004, the NYPD rounded up 1,800 activists and bystanders, holding many for days before dropping the charges on more than 90% of them. As Rebecca Burns points out in In These Times, right now the FBI is in North Carolina questioning activists in advance of the Democratic National Convention coming up in September. Burns's piece makes a number of points about the increasing squelching of dissent with predictive policing and other preemptive and repressive police practices. But these are, for the most part, lost on mainstream U.S. outlets, unless they're happening elsewhere, and especially in countries with uneasy relationships with the U.S. give you some background on this clip we're going to play from Bill O'Reilly. Now, uh, they have a stop and frisk policy in New York City. Now, what that means is that they uh, get to totally violate your constitutional rights, the cops do, if you're black or Hispanic. And, what, and Jimmy, what do you mean black or Hispanic? Okay. So here's, I'll give you the statistics, all right? So they have this policy where if the cops see you and they think that you're up to no good, they'll just stop you and frisk you and go through your pockets. <clears throat> and, um, and it turns out that they're not doing this uh, fairly, it, which is a shocker. You know, when you think mm-hmm. of New York police cops, you know, pepper spraying women uh, mm-hmm. and, and old ladies and pregnant people. Um, you, I always think when I think New York cop, I think somebody who's really uh, about civil rights. So uh, the New York City police have stopped and frisked 685,000 people last year. Are you kidding me? 685,000 people were stopped and frisked. 685,000 people were stopped. And that's the ones that they're reporting. That's a bad day <laughs> in what, New York. What percentage of those people would you say were black or Latino? Um, I'm going to say precisely a large percentage. <laughs> I'm going to say 82%. Most of them. I'm going to I'm going to take the devil's advocate up this on this and say 1%. <laughs> I'm going to challenge you, Dor. <laughs> okay, so um, the amount of black and Latinos made up 87% of the people who were stopped and frisked. That's almost 9 out of 10. Now, well, at least they're finally winning it's something. <laughs> it's like a B plus, isn't it? Nine out of ten people who are stopped and frisked in New York City are black or Latino. No, I'm not a math surgeon, but isn't that a high number? Mm-hmm. Doesn't Pretty that? High. And do you know how many people? Uh, how many? What percentage of people are innocent who are stopped and frisked? I'm going to say eighty percent. Ninety percent. So nine out of the ten people that they're stopping and frisking happen to be blacks or Latino and happen to be completely innocent. Well, at last, they're getting special treatment. 
<laughs> Can they stop complaining already? <laughs> Haven't we given them enough? New York City, they're stopping frisking uh, over a half a million people. 90% of them are black or Latino. Almost the- three quarters of a million people. Yeah, the KKK doesn't put up numbers like that. <laughs> I would love to be stopped and frisk. I'm a very lonely man. <laughs> Well, here's what, so, so people, so, so is this, so, so uh, Bill O'Reilly was talking about this, and here's what he had to say. And this is about racism. This is a racial story, not a drug story. Um, so he says right away, this is not a drug story. This is a, this is a racial story. Oh, he, he believes he's, that. He's saying that. Yes. Wow. Yeah, so I'll play it again. I know it's kind of stunning to hear him say that, right? And this is about racism. This is, this a, is about racism, says Bill O'Reilly. A racial story, not a drug story. Um, here in the city, we have stop and frisk policy, which has brought crime way down in New York way down okay and what that is is the cops know who the wise guys are they know who the dealers are they know who the punks are and they know who the the muggers are and they just happen to be the blacks and latinos Mm -hmm. that's who they are so what bill is saying so okay uh it's for it's about racism but racism is okay if it reduces crime right (laughs) that's what he's saying No, there's good racism there's good racism what he's saying 90% 90% of the people stopped and frisked are innocent of any crime, but let's at least give the police credit for letting all those people go. Yeah. I guess. And yeah. That's, a, that's a very solid uh, standard of the law. Yeah, they know who the bad guys are. The cops They know. know. Yeah, they know. We, we that, they'll say that. Do they say that in court now? Oh, he knew who, you know, uh, he, st- he knew who he was. Business is booming. Why do you got to pick on the fact that Hitler's in charge? <laughs> guys are. They know who the dealers are. They know who the punks are. And they know who the, the muggers are. And they try to get these guys on anything. It's like getting alcohol on tax evasion instead of murder, all right? So they know these guys carry pot and other drugs, and they stop and they frisk and they find them and they send them into the system. That's what drives crime down. Get them off the street. Mm-hmm. The left hates that, hates it, because it is racial profiling, but it's really criminal profiling. However, there are a number <laughs> but of But it is racial profiling. But it is. But it is racial. He That's said, like double racism, what he said right there. <laughs> yes, he's like, yeah, because I, I, he, he's saying, I admit it's racism, mm-hmm. but it brings down crime. So who cares? Was the scene, by the way, was the scene where Elliot Ness keeps stopping and frisking Al Capone cut out of the, that movie? <laughs> I don't remember that. You know, okay, so maybe 80%, 87% of the people who are stopped and frisks are black and Latino, but let's not forget the remaining 13% who were probably white and were getting hassled by blacks and Latino cops. That's what I'm saying. I probably I probably butchered that joke somehow. <laughs> Wasn't bad. Also, it really uh, deters um, the young people on the street who are ticklish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, he's got a little bit more to say. The left hates that. Hates it. Because it is racial profiling, but it's- yeah, the but. left hates it because they hate racial profiling and violating the Constitution. The right doesn't really care. Is that what he's saying? Yes, that's what he's saying. It's is it's it's putting up acceptable numbers for us. I'm willing to sacrifice your civil rights if it makes it easier you're- for me to get to the Lion King. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, your civil rights. He's willing right. to sacrifice someone exactly. else's civil yes. rights. Like yes. if 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 they yes. Mm-hmm. It's really criminal profiling. However, there are a number of people who are stopped and frisked who don't have anything, and they get angry. And I understand that. But it's a crime-fighting technique that they're now going to take away from the NYPD. And mark my words, street crime in New York will go up because... (laughs) Along with civil rights. (laughs) Sometimes witches will float, and sometimes they'll they'll sink. (laughs) And I understand... 
That can piss some people off, <laughs> and some innocent people will be hurt. Sure, blacks and Latinos get upset when they're stopped and frisked and they're innocent, but they need to realize that we're afraid of all of them. <laughs> you know, this is... We don't know which ones are bad. We don't know. You know, seriously, if, if they went down this road, what they, they would end up having, uh, they would absolutely end up having um, enhanced interrogation yes. for people that they that they pulled in off the street. Of Where did you get that crack? Who's selling, you know, and and. Because since we, it was unthinkable a few years ago that we do that in the military, but we're doing it. It's not unthinkable that, that, that if we kept going down this road that that would happen. Well, let me just say this to Bill O'Reilly. Uh, yes, the racist policy that you admit is racist and it's bothering other people, so you're okay with it because it brings down crime because it doesn't violate your civil rights. Guess what? There's a pretty low crime rate in China too, Bill, and it's surprisingly easy to keep the crime rate low if you don't care about people's basic civil rights or whether they're guilty of a crime or not. I wouldn't be surprised if the next thing Bill O'Reilly suggested is a re-education camp in Minnesota. <laughs> I mean, seriously, NYU PD. It's bad enough you get to stop and frisk people without probable cause, but you couldn't violate the Fourth Amendment without racial profiling? It just makes me wonder if there's anything you guys can't do without racial profiling. I bet your computer crimes unit looks for websites that feel a little bit too urban. <laughs> and by the way, Bill, it really doesn't matter that liberals don't like this policy. What actually matters is that citizens of this country are being made to feel like victims of their own society. When it comes to things like this, I'm going to be the first one to say it doesn't matter what me and my dope-smoking homosexual friends think. <laughs> Maybe you should ask the poor minorities who get disproportionately singled out and patted down what they think of this law. Or I have a better idea. How about we have the cops stop and frisk everyone outside the Fox News building for a couple of months? <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll see how you feel about it. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I've heard him, like in the wake of 9-11, I heard him complain loudly about him being frisked going into the airport at the TCA. Oh, he's upset with the TCA? He was upset. Of, he, he, he told a whole story about how they pulled him aside and they frisked and he was really upset about it. I, th I think the racism underneath everything he's saying is this kind of inherent belief that minorities are this monolithic block where they're all aware of everything each of them is doing and they're all complicit in it. So yeah, you're going to get stopped, but your cousin is the guy that actually has the weapon if on If they him. could just tell us who the bad ones are, right. we wouldn't bother the good ones. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. One week after the horrifying mass shooting in Aurora, Colorado, we have seen a few calls for new restrictions on guns. And a handful of Democrats in the House are calling for a ban on outsized magazines, more bullet control than gun control. 
Half a dozen Democrats in the Senate are pushing a similar measure for bullet control. At a speech in New Orleans, President Obama mentioned gun control, and just mentioning it counted as a landmark moment. Hunting and shooting are part of a, a, a cherished national heritage. But I also believe that a lot of gun owners would agree that AK-47s belong in the hands of soldiers, not in the hands of criminals. Even if we can all agree on that idea in the abstract, when it comes to policy, we can expect no new restrictions on guns or bullets anytime soon. But hey, here's a response to the massacre in Aurora. A real world could happen actual policy put forward by a Democrat in the liberal Valhalla, otherwise known as the city of San Francisco. San Francisco Mayor Ed Lee had already been calling for police to start a stop and frisk program. This week he decided he really, really wanted it now more than ever. Mayor Lee telling reporters, quote, I am as, if not more committed, and especially in light of the massacre that occurred in Aurora. If you're not familiar with stop and frisk, there's a good chance it's because you've never been stopped and frisked. It's a policing technique in which officers pull up to whomever they choose and demand answers about why you're standing there and what's in your pockets and so on. One minute you're minding your own business and the next, the police have you up against the wall. In theory, police are looking for drugs and guns. In practice, stop and frisk is confrontational almost by nature. And because it depends on police officers deciding which people to confront, the burden of being stopped and frisked tends to fall heavily on African-American and Latino men. For them, being called to account by armed police officers is an ordinary part of going to school, or the store, or the park, or their apartments. The numbers on this are astounding. In New York City, in the first three months of the year, police stopped 200,000 people. Just over half were black. A third were Latino, only 9% were white. This, this is what racial profiling looks like. And with so many men of color having been searched, New York City is now the subject of a federal class action suit. A judge in the case said police should never stop people without reasonable suspicion. She cited the city's, quote, deeply troubling apathy towards New Yorkers' most fundamental constitutional rights. Last month, the city of Philadelphia reached a settlement over its stop-and-frisk practices with fines and a new court-appointed monitor. That settlement could provide a model for an eventual ruling about New York. Meanwhile, the stopping and frisking keeps on. The rapper Jaziri X and comedian Elon James White just wrote the 10 Frisk Commandments, advice to live by in the current era of stop and frisk. Don't carry a gun, they say. Don't try to run. And then there's this part. Number 10, a strong word called the Constitution. Or does it apply then to only white men as being black and brown? Probable cause, hell no. So why we getting stopped, rain, sleet, hell, snow? Right. San Francisco's Mayor Lee first proposed bringing stop and frisk to his city last month. Since then, protesters have turned out at City Hall, calling out San Francisco's first Chinese-American mayor for pushing a policy that falls along racial lines. The city's Board of Supervisors then passed a unanimous resolution against a New York-style program of stop and frisk. But that is exactly what San Francisco's mayor says he wants, and he wants it even more after the mass shooting in Aurora, saying he is, if anything, more committed. And not just after the massacre in Aurora, but, quote, also the review of what's happening in New York and Philadelphia. 
even though those reviews have not gone so well. Why is it that progressives will tiptoe only timidly in the direction of gun control, but they're willing to throw black and Latino men against the wall? This is not just any city we're talking about. This is San Francisco, for Pete's sake. There's hardly a more blue locality on the planet. San Francisco is so liberal, you can't get a plastic bag at the grocery store. They spent a long time last year trying to decide under what conditions you can eat butt naked in a restaurant. Sit on your napkin. That, that's now the rule. And yet the mayor of this same super blue paper, not plastic dining hall, fresco, 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 ultra liberal San Francisco is ready to start with the stop and the frisk. If San Francisco will not stand up against stop and frisk, who will? Joining us now is Marquez Claxton, director of the Black Law Enforcement Alliance. He's also a former detective with the NYPD. Mark, it is really good to have you with us tonight. Thanks for having me on, Melissa. So, Mark, I'm, I'm interested because it feels to me like there is there's a real challenge here. When you live particularly in communities of color, many of the communities in which we live are deeply impacted by violence on the streets. We would like violence Absolutely. to stop. On the other hand, we are citizens. We are, you know, people living in these communities. We don't want to have our civil rights violated. How do we make a balance on that issue? Well, first off, let me just add an extra piece of data to the information that you supplied earlier in regards to the NYPD stops. In, in all of the numbers that you gave, 90% of the individuals who were stopped were innocent, had committed no mm -hmm. crime, no violation of law, et cetera. What we have to really understand and be committed to is protecting and defending those rights that people have lived and died for and that are ingrained in the Constitution and supported by Supreme Court decisions such as the Terry versus Ohio decision, which deals specifically with the police officer's ability and, and obligation to stop certain individuals who are suspected of criminal conduct and based on reasonable suspicion. We can't allow police department and police agencies across this nation to dance away from that responsibility. Reasonable suspicion is easy for a professional police officer and a professional police department. Right. I think this is such a, such a critically important point that 90% of those who were stopped were actually innocent of whatever it was they were stopped for doing. And, and yet you're unbelievable. Point, yeah, I mean, that, that, that is. And the idea that then another locality, particularly one as liberal as San Francisco, would say, oh, this looks like like an appropriate policy. Yeah, well, I can assure you that that uh, Mayor Lee probably spoke to Mayor Bloomberg in New York and they had their one-on-one -on -one conversation without a real comprehensive analytical approach to this. And it's, it's especially troubling given Mayor Lee's uh, a past and civil rights involvement. He, here we have a, a civil rights attorney who is actually considering a policy that has been established, proven, shown by NYPD's own documents and, and data uh, to be race-based and motivated and is not effective. I will argue with anyone about whether or not Stop and Frisk has any relationship in getting guns off the street. It does not. It pads the numbers for police departments. Police officers already have the ability to stop individuals who are suspected of criminal conduct or have engaged in criminal conduct if, as long as it's based on reasonable suspicion. 
professional police officers have been doing that for eons. There is no need to circumvent or short or shortchange a professional police officer's responsibilities. It is a, a, a mistake for any municipality to even consider this type of operation, if you will, stop and frisk. We have the authority as police officers to stop criminals as it is, and we need to implement new strategy and come up with new ideas, perhaps. So, Mark, talk to me about those new ideas, because I've heard you say a couple of times here, professional police officers, which sounds to me like there's an aspect of policing that you think we are, we're actually missing when we encourage police officers to do this kind of stop and frisk policy. Right. You know, for, for years, uh, there has been a struggle by many uh, police departments and police agencies across the nation to professionalize their police department, to implement additional training, to have uh, knowledge-based programming and training and functions, et cetera. Those things that make your department professional. Listen, anyone can go out and say, go stop 20 people on a corner and hopefully we'll come up with something. It's really a matter of, of fishing. You know, when you just throw the, mm -hmm. the wide net out and, and pull it in and hopefully some, you know, of the, the fish you want to keep will be in it. It takes a professional police officer with the ability and the training and the knowledge and understanding the Constitution and those things that restrict, the, uh, you know, those things that we can do as professional police officers. It takes a professional to really apply the law effectively and still be effective in fighting crime. We can't allow police agencies and police departments, regardless of their intentions, I'm sure that, that Mayor Lee is as concerned as many uh, areas of the country are concerned about the level, escalating level of violence, but you can't infringe upon people's constitutional rights and the stop and frisk program, whatever ridiculous thing that is, does exactly that. I've been stopped and frisked for years. They treat us like we animals. I'm so used to it. I wrote me a manual, a step-by-step -step booklet, so you can get through your stop and frisk before they cock and spit. Rule number one, never carry a gun. Even if you got a license, it might be a crisis. If you make a move for your waist just the slightest, they'll empty every round of their clips to you lifeless. Rule number two, in fact, make no sudden moves. Don't you know these bad boys use violence to silence? Don't treat you like your highness. I done seen mad kids get their wigs cold busted over nothing. Number three, never trust no police. These cops will set a brother up, gun them up, then cover up. Whenever they run amok and come to bust on one of us, it's never justice, cause it's always just us. Number four, I know you heard this before. Always comply and pray to God you survive. Number five, never talk back when they talk smack. Even if they call you a nigga man, be the bigger man. Six, then you can run a jet quick, dead it. They'll catch you and beat you so bad you won't forget it number seven this rule is so underrated always try to stay in places well lit and populated because when streets is watching police get carted so you might survive without getting beat and hauled and number eight any weight that you carries a risk they catch you with a nick that beat you like you hustling bricks number nine should have been number one to me every time you get stopped always film the police because if you get a whip and they ain't trying to listen you'll be sitting in prison if they don't see it with a vision number ten is strong word called the constitution or does it apply then to only white men is being black and brown probable cause hell no so why we getting stopped rain sleet hell snow follow these rules you'll have more days to wake up if not cops can pull out and shoot the place up slugs at your temple watch your frame shake up the caretaker did your makeup when you pass them cops they ain't even break up no charge they ain't miss a day you get a pay cut it's only us they can stop but they say it ain't racist gotta go before Pope Pope come and take us, yeah.
In April, after the arrest of a dozen protesters for obstructing the flow of traffic at an Occupy Minnesota demonstration in Minneapolis, the occupiers posted videos on YouTube, which showed several of them apparently being roughed up by the police. To view the tape, you'd gather that the police simply moved in and commenced arresting protesters without warning. But there was another camera rolling that night, one belonging to the police themselves. And in response to the protesters' video, the Minnesota Police Department posted around 20 minutes of raw footage on its new YouTube channel. On that video, you can clearly see the police delivering several warnings by bullhorn. We failed to remove the obstructions on the plaza. The Minneapolis Police Department will take enforcement action. I want to thank you in advance for your cooperation. Incoming Minneapolis Police Chief Janae Harteau says that MPD's new YouTube channel was originally meant as a repository of raw footage to shine a light on police work, but after the Occupy incident, they realized they could use the channel to level the playing field. It never occurred to us at the time to be proactive. We tend to be reactive to somebody that comes forward and either makes accusations or you see small news clips on television because they have a short period of time. And here we had a 20-minute or so video that could show the entire story. Well, not the entire story. Multiple video points of view are better than fewer, and raw footage is better than edited footage. But your camera person's fairly close-up perspective did obscure some of the things that did come out on some Occupy video. For example, an officer knocking down one of the protesters and the camera going to the street. And I think some of that just had to do with the close-up vantage. Who was shooting this for you? Our crime lab videographers were out at the scene. And there's the problem. They have a kind of close-up mentality. Correct. Did you ask them subsequently to do a little more pullback to reveal? The pullback, but also to try to have multidimensional. Cameras will tell the story of what they see. And so the more dimensions we have and the more cameras we have, obviously we can get a better picture of all the scenarios as to what's happened. This all makes very good sense to add perspective to what is almost by definition a chaotic situation. But I'm wondering how long your efforts at radical transparency will last. For example, what happens if your police cameras capture your officers violating departmental policy or possibly even the law making your video evidentiary and perhaps prohibiting you from posting it routinely online? When things are evidence, yes, we will have to withhold that. But we will certainly deal with any video that shows misconduct of any kind, just as we would if a citizen brought that video in. The uh, incident you discussed about the camera man was brought before internal affairs and being dealt with. Tell me about your own ranks. Are there officers grumbling about having Big Brother looking over their shoulder while they're trying to go about their business? Officers have always been a little bit hesitant with video, but that documentation has saved officers more often than not from frivolous accusations. I'm very proud of the officers here and their work, and we need to be able to show what they do. And officers should assume, frankly, that they're always being videotaped. There's fixed cameras throughout the city. There are squad cameras that people may not know that are running. I mean, the technology is there, and so the assumption should be made that they're under surveillance. 
as you look at video of the Occupy protests, everybody's got a cell phone, and they're all taking pictures of the police work in progress. How has this changed police work in Minneapolis? When you see that people are using cameras, there are times that it actually interferes with an officer's ability to do their job. I realize that people want to see what occurred, and they want to document that. But police also have a job to do, and their goal is to facilitate and support freedom of speech, protect people's rights, and keep them safe. So it does become more challenging. It also becomes challenging when it comes to going to court, because the concern is an officer's word doesn't mean as much as it used to if it doesn't have cooperating video or DNA, and that's unfortunate because there are going to be times that the camera didn't work or the camera didn't capture that view or the camera is facing forward, but what occurred is behind you. So it's a tool, but it's not a guarantee. It's not a fix. It's not an end-all. All right. Chief, thank you very much. Thank you. Chief Janae Harteau is the incoming chief of police for the city of Minneapolis. It's actually legal to film the police, but you might not know that since people are arrested for doing it all the time particularly during the height of last year's Occupy protests. But that police practice may be on the way out. The Connecticut Senate recently passed a bill that would make it illegal for cops to arrest or otherwise interfere with citizens who film them, provided the citizens aren't themselves interfering in police business. Mickey Osterreicher is general counsel for the National Press Photographers Association. He supports photographers he believes are wrongfully arrested and gives seminars to police on First and Fourth Amendment rights. The First Amendment is not absolute. It's subject to reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions. So would it be reasonable for an officer to say to you, if you were standing three feet away while you were filming, can you please move back ten feet? Or during a demonstration, if you were out in the street, can you please get up on the sidewalk and film? That's a reasonable time, place, and manner restriction. Can he tell you to just stop doing what you're doing? Can they then seize your phone? They do have a right to seize equipment if they believe that you have recorded evidence of a crime for a very short duration, but they certainly have no right to look at it without a proper subpoena or warrant, and they never, ever, ever have the right to destroy the images that are on that phone or camera. None of this talk is hypothetical. There have been a number of cases where citizen video has caught police in varying degrees of mischief from roughing up a 14-year-old skateboarder in Baltimore to the shooting in the back of a handcuffed guy on a subway platform in Oakland, a young man named Oscar Grant. This video can reveal a lot, including the most abject police brutality. I mean, recordings obviously are much better than eyewitness testimony. And officers realize that, and many of them are fearful, even though, you know, from my point of view, they shouldn't be. Because if there's a claim of use of excessive force or police brutality, and the video shows that they acted in a manner uh, to effectuate an arrest as comports with their training, then that will help support their position that they didn't do anything wrong. You go to workshops with police, what kind of reception do you get? Did the police report to you that they've had the scales fall from their eyes and now, aha, I get it? 
they're pretty skeptical at first. I mean, the look that I'm used to is, who is this guy and why are we going to have to sit here for a couple hours and listen to him? I try and engage them in a dialogue and a conversation. And really, at the end of that, I've had officers come up to me and ask me different questions about certain scenarios. I have found, at least in the departments that I dealt with, that the top people are very interested in having proper training for their officers and guidelines. Tell me about the back and forth between the Baltimore Police Department and the Department of Justice over a 2010 case in which cops confiscated a man's camera and erased its contents. The DOJ sent a letter outlining what it took to be Baltimore's dubious behavior. Baltimore rewrote its policy, and then the DOJ wrote again. Why did they have to double back to make their point? The first time that the Department of Justice intervened back in January, they entered what is called a statement of interest. And basically, the Department of Justice talked about the right of citizens to record that those rights are consistent with the First Amendment, that citizens have the right to be secure against unreasonable search and seizure, and they basically just sat back to see what the department would do. In response, the Baltimore police said, yes, we've reviewed our policies, we are giving new instructions to our cops, we promise you everything's going to be all better now. And then what happened? They issued a press release letting everybody know that they'd implemented these new guidelines and done training since back in November. And I think that was on a Thursday or a Friday in February. And literally Saturday night, there's this video that ended up on YouTube of somebody who was recording about six officers gathered around a person who was lying on the ground. You can see one of the officers looks up and in one fluid motion reaches for her handcuffs, comes up to the photographer, and she and the other officers end up moving the guy down the street, up kind of an alley, continuing to threaten him with arrest for loitering. Walk down the street. All right. And you, you guys do know you have a standing order... To allow people to record it. I, I'm leaving. I haven't... Sir, what? I'm leaving. Turn around and walk. I'm leaving. Turn around and walk. Give me your ID. And the Department of Justice says, no, really, you're not doing this right, and wrote another letter to the Baltimore police. Right, and this one is almost a step-by-step connect-the-dots guideline of what they want to see as policies and what they want to see articulated in those policies. And as far as I know, the Department of Justice has not heard back from the Baltimore police since that letter. You believe that there's something else at work here, and that is just the culture of policing. What happens when cops get their game face on. No matter what the law says, what will it take to defeat that culture? It really is something that's cultural. I can't tell you how many times our members in the NPPA have told me of officers coming up to them and putting their hands over their lens. One of the things that I talk about all the time is we see this video coming out of the Arab Spring, most recently out of Syria. People are risking their lives to record tanks in the street and soldiers killing civilians. And they do this mostly on cell phones. And we look at what we see and think how heroic. And yet those same actions on the streets in the United States are looked at as suspect. And I have a real problem with that. And that's the type of culture I'm trying to change. 
ACLU wants to help out individuals who want to covertly videotape police officials that are violating their rights. Now, this is an ongoing problem. Police officials don't like when they're being videotaped, especially when they're doing something wrong. So the ACLU has developed this new app. It's known as the Police Accountability App. And basically what it'll do is it'll black out the screen while you're videotaping them. So they won't be able to tell you're videotaping them. But if they're clever enough to figure it out, it doesn't matter. Even if they destroy your phone, that footage has already been saved on ACLU's server. Oh, huge win. I love it. ACLU FTW. Okay. I mean, because th those guys, you think the cops are just going to let you walk away with a phone if they've done something really bad and it's on the phone? Exactly. NYPD is going to let you walk away with it? And be like, oh, well, on the other hand, you have constitutional rights to your property. So here you go, sir. Yeah, good luck. So they're like, oh, no, no, it's cool. We'll take the phone. See how, how much that helps you. No, no, go ahead and break the phone on camera. It'll be great for us because we've already got it stored. I love it. And look, we can use the same logic on the cops that they always use on us. Well, if you're not doing anything wrong, then you got nothing to worry about, right? So when they do the warrantless wiretapping, etc., so if you're not doing anything wrong, okay, cops, if you're not doing anything wrong, you shouldn't worry about us sending that tape to a database somewhere. And not only that, the government isn't paying us. We're not public employees. Of course, there are public employees out there, but we're paying police officials, so we're supposed to be allowed to hold them accountable. Yeah, exactly. And if you don't like it, sad day for you. Uh, I, I'd be surprised if they didn't do Stuxnet on the ACLU computers. You know, the program they unleashed on Iran to dest yeah. destroy their uh, advancement in nuclear energy? Yeah. Coming in ACLU's direction. Can I address one potential, uh, I guess, logistical question with this? It blacks out the phone, your screen. You might not get the good footage if you can't see what you're taping. I feel like it's maybe pointless to do that part. If, am I, maybe I'm seeing this. No, wrong. I'm sure it's an option. Am I getting something wrong? I'm sure it's an option. Like normally, you probably aren't blacked out, but uh. if the cop is about to come, you and then you do the best you can. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. And by the way, here's also what's actually going to happen in real life. You're accidentally going to press that button and record horrible things you've done and accidentally send it to the ACLU, which will probably be a lot of fun for the ACLU. Right. And you're like, what? Can I? Can no, I just kind of okay. get that one back? Can I just, and you're like, eh, no, not really. Let me just say something about the ACLU. It's like the one organization that I would trust. Like mm -hmm. if I took a racy video and accidentally sent it to them and someone said, oh, you just sent that to the ACLU, I'd be like, nah, that's fine. No. I'm not saying do it. but Okay, I just, let me ask you this. Are there any males that work at the ACLU? <laughs> of course, of course. Okay. That's fine. All right, yeah, then you're in some trouble. <laughs> no, but no. In all uh, honesty, I'm not saying inside. I'm in favor of it. I'm not going to go home and be like, "Oh yeah, I'm saying it." <laughs> <laughs> but I'm hey, saying, so you, you want to see something? <laughs> okay. I'm just saying there are worse people that can get a hold of your racy videos. No, I agree. Like, if if anybody's going to get a hold of your racy video, you're like, please let it be the ACLU. Yeah. <laughs> I turn my camera on. I cut my fingers on the way. On the way, the way I'm slipping away I turned my feelings up You made me untouchable for life Yeah, yeah And you was a light It hit me like a tongue You hit me like a tongue I took my feet 
So as you will recall, the AP had a uh, blockbuster series of reports last year, which I think won a Pulitzer, if I'm not mistaken, on the fact that the NYPD, in conjunction with the CIA, and you'll recall that there was a tiny law somewhere, the CIA was not supposed to be engaged in domestic spying, well, they figured out how to get around that, apparently, which is just to send somebody who's on their payroll to also be on the payroll of the New York Police Department. And so uh, that's the way that works. And the New York Police Department was spying, gathering intelligence, we should say. Not just in New York City, where they have jurisdiction, but in places like New Jersey and Connecticut. I think as far north as Maine, probably down in Florida and North Carolina. In fact, it seems like they were going anywhere, overseas. And they were engaging not just in intelligence collection. Well, I guess if you want to speak about it in its broadest sense of the word, they were spying. And infiltrating things like hmm, Muslim student groups at colleges and universities. One of those universities was Rutgers University, which is uh, in New Jersey. I have that right? And apparently, well, the New York Police Department claims that they weren't doing police work, so they were able to do this. I guess uh, what they're, they're spying is not spying. That's what they do in their free time. That's what they do in their free time. In February of this year, the NYPD's Deputy Commissioner for Legal Matters, Andrew Schaefer, told reporters that detectives can operate outside of New York because they aren't conducting official police duties. They're not acting as police officers in other jurisdictions. Well, is it legal to spy on people with that type of technology if you're, out, if you're not a cop? But the NYPD simultaneously was also trying to keep under wraps a 9-11 call which exposed one of their spying programs. And in doing so, Lieutenant Commander William McGrody and Assistant Chief Thomas Galati argued that releasing the recording, this is, uh, would jeopardize investigations and endanger the people in buildings. Well, here is that recording. It is a building super doing a uh, five-year, I don't know, annual, what do you call that? Fifth annual? Uh, inspection of apartments, I assume, for uh, building code reasons. And what he finds is distressing enough for him to call a 911 operator. And that 911 operator was certainly surprised to hear what he had to say. We, we've been doing a five-year state inspection. Mm-hmm. And uh, came across an apartment where there's some suspicious activity. You know, What's we suspicious? Just, suspicious in the sense that the apartment has about has no far, has no furniture except two beds, mm -hmm. has no clothing, has uh, New York City Police Department uh, radios. There's really? computers in there. Uh, what? There's computer hardware, software. You know, just. 
laying around. Uh-huh. There's pictures of uh, terrorists. There's pictures of our neighboring uh, buildings that they have. In New Brunswick? Yes. So you were inspecting the apartments for... We have our annual, uh, I mean, our every five-year state inspection for every apartment. Okay. So we notified all the residents that we'd be going into each unit. Okay. And that that was about two weeks ago. And uh, so we've been going through the building, you know, unit by unit, and we came across this one apartment, number 1076, mm-hmm. and it had these serious items. But it doesn't seem like it's had it if, if someone's in there because... We sent out a notice about two weeks ago that we're going to be doing the state inspection, uh-huh. and that notice is still hanging on was still hanging on the front door. Okay. All right. Um, whoever's in the apartment, just tell them to get out, and I will uh, speak to my supervisor. Obviously. There you go. She's shocked, and he also doesn't know what the word is for a every five year inspection. Serve and protect and spy. I want to protect you. I want to protect you. I want you to be safe and sound at night in this world. Such a delicate girl needs someone to look out for the wolves. I want to protect you. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. A bomb-sniffing dog humps a bomb-diffusing robot. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. On the lighter side of the news, police restrained a love-struck bomb-sniffing German shepherd at the municipal courthouse today after the four-legged Lothario got a little too friendly with his partner, a bomb-diffusing robot. One bystander at the scene of the bomb scare had this to say. Well, everybody's on pins and needles. All of a sudden, this dog just starts, you know, humping that robot. It was like, really, nobody knew what to say at first, and then everybody was just laughing. Even the police. The impromptu public display of affection between robot and dog delayed the bomb squad's efforts while the lovebirds were pried apart. Thirteen people died in the resulting blast. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. Online at the called Onion. it puppy love. Oh, I guess they'll never know. And they called it puppy love. Media approval is more common than media scrutiny when it comes to police repression in the United States. 
Take the June 11th Newsweek profile of New York City Police Commissioner Ray Kelly. The subhead tells the story. The New York City Police Commissioner is beating the enemy if only the feds don't get in his way. Kelly, writes Christopher Dickey, Newsweek's European editor, is the pugnacious police commissioner with awesome terror-fighting skills. Quote, Since he took over as police commissioner in the aftermath of 9-11, Kelly's most critical mission has been to thwart all terrorist threats against the city, and he's aimed to do that, in some cases, even before a plot is entirely clear to the plotters themselves. Close quote. That's right, he's busting plots that even the plotters themselves don't know they're plotting. At the moment, there are two major scandals involving the NYPD under Kelly's leadership, surveillance of local Muslim communities based solely on their religion, and the pervasive harassment, primarily of young men of color, associated with the department's stop-and-frisk policies. Dickey brushes civil libertarians' concerns aside, suggesting, in terms that seem drawn from a press release, that if Kelly is pushing the limits of the law, well, that's just the price for security. But critics don't contend Kelly is pushing the law, but that he's breaking it. And they challenge whether we are, in fact, more secure. They could have explained their perspective had Newsweek bothered to talk to them. Then again, that would have left less room for comments like one that Kelly, who took a half-million-dollar-a-year job at Bear Stearns when he was away from law enforcement, lives in a comfortable but modest apartment, quote, displaying little interest in money, close quote. The piece closes by noting that Kelly seems to resemble one of his idols, Teddy Roosevelt, also a one-time commissioner of New York City's police department. Well, if Kelly has higher political aspirations, we know of at least one reporter who will be there to cheer him on. of interest, Mike Bloomberg going on ABC, uh, what was it, CNN, I guess. And uh, Mike Bloomberg has an interesting theory as to what uh, police officers should do in response to the uh, inability of our leaders in this country, our political leaders, to enact some type of sensible gun control. Here is that interview. Every time one of these things happens, Gabrielle Giffords last year, this shooting here, there's an outrage, and then very quickly it, it dissipates. The American people quite quickly go back to their normal lives, and they don't demand action in the way that I would expect them to. Why do so many Americans not feel angry enough to demand further gun control. Well, I would take it one step further. I don't understand why the police officers across this country don't stand up collectively and say, we're going to go on strike. We're not going to protect you unless you, the public, through your legislature, do what's required to keep us safe. After all, police officers want to go home to their families. So there we have Mike Bloomberg, seemingly completely unaware of the irony of his proposal. 
uh, not only is it illegal, I believe, for police to go on strike, but who would repress them and keep them from protesting if all the police went on strike? Who would harass them, visit them in the nights uh, before they are planning to go on strike, uh, park a uh, police vehicle out in front of their house and just try and harass them? Uh, who would intimidate them? Who would mace them, uh, pepper spray them? Um, who would uh, bring them in and arrest them on charges that uh, ha hold no water? Who would uh, beat them? Who would, who would do it? Who would close the parks? Who would close the parks? Who would um, uh, stop their ability from uh, carrying signs? I mean, you know, it's easy to offhandedly pr promote this, but there's a lot of work that's got to be done to suppress these people. And if the cops are out on strike, who would be left? Michael Bloomberg. Those cops should get a job. Yeah, go get a job. Love it or leave it. spend so much of our lives chasing security, right? Chasing that sweet spot where, where everything's just right and nothing changes. The car always runs well and the dog never on the rug and the 2.5 kids always get straight A's. Well, maybe, maybe not the half a kid, he's a moron, but... But the problem with this never-ending pursuit of security is that life is always changing. Life is by definition change, and there's nothing we can do to stop that. But instead, we waste our days worrying about one thing or another. What if my boy bumps his head? What if, what if I go hiking and get bitten by a snake? What if, what if my bus crashes? Or what if someone sneaks a bomb onto my plane inside a fake... So we resolve this by avoiding things and adding security measures that take away our freedom. We refuse to go hiking or don't let the kid play on the jungle gym. We put, we put checks into every airport to make sure your is a real one. Life is short. It's fleeting. It's only here for a second. And we waste so much of it with what-if scenarios. We take something that could be magical, could be incredible, and we destroy it by picturing ways it might, if we're not careful, suck we need to step back from infinite security and instead appreciate life for what it is. Because you know the closest thing to true security? A jail cell in solitary confinement, perfectly unchanging forever. So here's the answer. Let's start an insecurity campaign to help people realize life is not secure. We put UFC fighters in public areas to simply kick random people in the face. We put snakes in shoe stores and baby alligators in swimming pools. We pick clothing stores at random and rub poison ivy in the underwear. We get Photoshop ex experts to, to create images of people naked riding a monkey and then we post those photos on their Facebook wall. We kidnap people's dogs in the night and replace them with ferrets for one week. Then we sneak back in and put the dog back. Not only will that person appreciate their dog like never before, but they'll have a story to tell about the week their dog turned into a ferret.
Point is, we show people that you never know what to expect. Nothing is sure. Nothing is secure. That's both the curse and the gift of life. Appreciate the now, your friends, your experiences, your freedom, what freedom you have left. Because you never know when your clothes might have poison ivy. You never know when your kids might be replaced by woodland creatures for no good reason. Hey Jay, this is Matt in Wisconsin, and this is a response to all of the uh, the centrist issue and the uh, third-party voting um, concerns that everyone's been having. It's kind of a little late for people to be complaining about this when I don't recall there actually being any type of primary for Obama uh, when we when we were getting ready for this. We stayed silent on on his on him being the Democratic uh, nominee for us. And we knew we weren't going to be voting for a Democrat, but I mean for a Republican, but we chose him because we didn't put up enough of a fight back then. This thing has been going over and over. People keep saying that if you don't vote for him, vote for the third party, you'll actually hurt him and we don't want the other guy. That's what the primary is for, is it not? What am I missing? And as far as, the, I mean, with the centrist issue, look what happened with the Tea Party people. They took the label of Republican, jumped in, put their voices out, and people treated them like a third party. I mean, this is... Where is our Tea Party? Thanks, thanks for your time. I hope I get a response on this. Hey, Jay, this is Matt from Sacramento. I was just calling to weigh in on the centrism debate. I just think that a lot of people have forgotten where the center of American politics is supposed to be. Um, and we've got Barack Obama, who ostensibly is a Democrat, but uh, I think he's really a moderate Republican. And we've got the Tea Party-controlled Congress. So where's the center? Uh, certainly the left is not represented at all there. And I think that, you know, it's kind of like a family uh, sitting down for dinner, having an argument over how much meat to eat for dinner. Dad wants a full pound of meat, and Mom wants half a pound, and they have a centrist and lively discussion about it. But meanwhile, the child is just sitting there going, God, I'm a vegetarian. Uh, there's nowhere for me in this argument. I just better sit here and kind of deal with the consequences. And, you know, all they're left with is a bunch of vitriol. And I think that's what we see now in a lot of progressive podcasts these days is just vitriol. And, I mean, people have a right to be upset. I don't think they're being represented adequately. I think that, you know... If the Republicans have already declared that there's no room for compromise, I mean, is there really a centrist debate going on? Anyway, that's really all i got to say about that. Thanks for your podcast, and uh, look forward to your next episode. Hey, Jay, this is Todd from uh, Occupied Los Angeles, and um, I wanted to chime in on the third party and why I believe that um, voting for a third party is a valid strategy. This is coming from somebody who was a lifelong Democrat, uh, volunteered on many campaigns. The most recent was, you know, Obama's campaign, which I volunteered for eight months, you know, but uh, since being involved with Occupy, and this is important for when the FBI finally takes me to uh, court, you know, I was radicalized by, by Occupy. Um, you know, but even well before then, starting with Al Gore, it was obvious that the Democrats were 
just abusing my vote, taking me for granted. I mean, that's the one thing the Tea Party has uh, been effective at, is that, you know, they've got some purity in their party, which, you know, I'm not looking for purity. I'm just looking for, you know, an actual Democrat, you know, <laughs> traditional Democratic values. Now, I think the two-party system and money in politics is way too rigged for me to have any belief in that system any longer. But I certainly think, you know, strategically speaking, that uh, voting for a third-party candidate is completely valid, you know, especially if there's millions of votes. And st further strategically speaking, since, I, you know, I think Romney would be a horrible president, not much worse than Obama, that it will be better if Romney wins because, you know, especially the women will be re-radicalized, the left will be re-radicalized, you know, and they will also pull Congress and the Senate with them. So that's my strategic thinking on that and why you should support a third-party candidate. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So the, the last call I just played from Todd is exactly the kind of call I like to get from someone who's advocating uh, for third-party voting because he, he wasn't delusional about it. You know, if you heard, you know, at the end of his argument, basically he was saying that, you know, not in these words, but he's saying if you're a progressive and you're voting for a third party, then that is sort of a roundabout way of supporting the conservative candidate in the, you know, lesser of two evils, terrible two-party system that we have right now. And in his perspective, he was saying that Romney winning would actually be better in terms of helping radicalize the progressive base. And I mean, he's correct in what it would do to the progressive base, but I don't know what that long-term strategy leads to because we just had eight years of Bush and eight years of radicalizing the progressive base. And that gave us a black guy with a Muslim name as president. And that seemed pretty good for a while, but here we are again, thinking that we need to, you know, not just get rid of him, but actually give it back to the other team just as a way to, uh, you know, inspire ourselves. That seems like the mother of all short-term plans. You know, it's like every time you're hungry, only eating sugar to get a nice sugar rush, but having no sustainable, you know, long-term source of energy. And I mean, I know Todd's a good guy. Like, he, of course, he's in favor of campaign finance reform and corporate dehumanization and all of those sorts of things that will actually fundamentally help the system. But in terms of electoral strategy, that doesn't strike me as much of a strategy, frankly. Now, I actually have heard one strategy that did strike me as interesting, and uh, this was what Jimmy Dore from The Jimmy Dore Show was saying for a while, is that he thought that Romney should win because if Romney won and tried to implement, you know, really terrible policies that hurt uh, American civil liberties, then the Democrats would then oppose him on those because he's from the opposite party, whereas when Obama is in and tries to set policy that is damaging to American civil liberties, the Democrats go along with it because they're in the same party. And then, of course, the Republicans go along with it because they want to damage American civil liberties. And I thought, okay, now that is an interesting perspective. Uh, he has since changed his mind on that and, and things have happened, come to light, that he decided, no, no, like, Obama really is better, he's more progressive than I thought, uh, and, and so Jimmy's now supporting Obama, I mean, at least until he changes his mind again, um, but that's neither here nor there, you know, but that, that was one perspective that I was like, now that is a solid strategic perspective on why it would be better to have the Republican in power uh, that, that doesn't have to do with just, you know, energizing your base in sort of a 
theoretical way uh, that, that would have some sort of theoretical impact on future elections. But I have one last thing to say, which is, you know, in response to that, that idea that's out there about how we should mimic what the Tea Party does. You know, the Tea Party, you know, they, they came to power and they made themselves relevant because they were willing to primary, uh, you know, Republican candidates. They were willing to have short-term losses in order to uh, have long-term gains, you know, to really radicalize their party. And in principle, I, I'm actually in favor of that argument that says Democrats should kind of do the same thing. But what I think is true the reason that Democrats and progressives in general are not going to be able to mimic that is because we care too much. And, and I'll, I'll explain is that the, the goal of the Tea Party is to destroy government. They don't like the government. They want to tear it down. They don't want it to function. And so when the Tea Party attempts to win and loses, the, the downside for them is that the government continues functioning a little while longer against their will. Whereas when the Democrats, you know, if, if we tried to rat radicalize the Democrats and we had short-term losses and, and, you know, gave lots of power to the Republicans, our goal is to keep the government running to, like, protect people and, you know, save lives through uh, regulation and those sorts of things. And our short-term losses would lead to, you know, the Tea Party and, and their ilk gaining power, deregulating and, and tearing down the government. So our short-term losses actually then equate to literal people dying. And I think that progressives in general have a, a good enough concept of that fact to know that it's not worth it for people to actually die for us to try to make political gains in, in a theoretical way in the future. So we say, no, 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 we, we can't do it. We cannot let the Tea Party take control because they will tear the place to the ground. So although in the long term, you know, br broad strategy of it all, I sort of do personally like the idea of trying to radicalize the, the Democrats and and, you know, have real solid progressives take control of the party. And, and if it takes short term losses in the, in the meantime to do that, then in the long term, that would be great. I just don't think that a big enough coalition can be brought together to do that, knowing that those short-term losses in the meantime will result in such immediate devastation to people who need help when, you know, we have the power to help them. If only we win those elections and, uh, you know, keep progressives funding programs that help people, I think enough people make that calculation that it is not worth the risk of those people being hurt in the meantime for those long-term political ends. So those are my thoughts on that. Keep your ideas coming in. That number again, 206-202-3410. And thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making a one-time donation. That is absolutely how the show survives. All of that can be done through the website. Uh, stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Fine, fine, now black and white. You took apart a picture that wasn't right. 